0: With this new book, Burn In, we leaned into that. Uh, every part of it, the, the design of it, the scenes of it, are constantly trying to hit that what's going to be interesting, what's going to keep you up late at night reading it, but also because there's the end note, what's going to keep you, if you're on the policy side, late at night to go, ooh, hold it, this nightmare scenario, could it be real? Oh crap, there's the end note to show that it is real.
1: episode 316 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Stepto and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family members, uh, or even, frankly, our pets, uh, from whom we will undoubtedly hear during the uh, broadcast. Uh, Today, I'm going to be interviewing Peter Singer, who's a strategist at New America and a uh, very prolific author on tech and cyber. He's been on before uh, 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 talking to us about uh, uh, war with China, limited war with China. Uh, But he's got a new book out uh, called Burn In, a novel of the Real robotic revolution. I and uh, we'll be discussing with him. Uh, the genre of useful fiction that he has uh, pioneered. Uh, he's written this book with August Cole, I should say. And uh, joining me first for the inter- for the news roundup will be David Chris, uh, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Mark McCarthy, who is a professor and senior fellow at the Institute for Technology, Law and Policy at Georgetown University. Nick Weaver, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur uh, for today's program. So, why don't we jump right in? Uh, uh, David, um, FISA uh, goes from disaster to disaster. Uh, We're now, uh, (laughs) uh, what, uh, close to three months without having renewed the authorities that uh, uh, expired uh, earlier in the year. Um, And uh, the Senate managed to sort of do its duty and yet uh, create a new perils of Pauline for the statute. Uh, uh, where does this stand now?
2: Yeah, um, it is not clear how this is really going to play out. Just to orient folks, there are three provisions of FISA that have lapsed concerning roving surveillance, uh, lone wolf terrorism surveillance, and the business records provision has reverted to a much earlier and narrow version. And amazingly, there's there's actually pretty good bipartisan consensus on what to do with each of those three provisions, and that is to renew them, but to end a particular use of the business records authority to collect call detail records on an ongoing basis. But the reason things are so strange uh, is because the renewal of those three authorities on which there is consensus, has been a vehicle for uh, raising a whole bunch of other issues uh, on which there is not the same level of consensus, chiefly concerned with accuracy issues and the use of FISA against political campaigns coming out of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation by the DOJ inspector general, and some follow-up work he did finding what looks to be widespread problems in the accuracy of FISA uh, applications by the FBI in all kinds of cases. And just an enhanced caveat, uh, building on what you said about pets and the like at the beginning, Stuart, I I was the amicus curiae for the FISA court on the FBI's accuracy issues there. uh, That generated a little bit of controversy, at least before I filed my brief criticizing the Bureau. And so I ought to just say here for sure, in case anyone had any doubts, that not only am I not speaking for pets, but not speaking for the court or in a capacity as amicus or for any of the other amici. Um, So there's been a long back and forth now between the House and the Senate about how to adopt new restrictions that uh, address some of the concerns around accuracy and use of FISA against campaigns or in other sensitive cases. Um, Amazingly, there was Pretty good bipartisan consensus in the House a while back with Attorney General Barr, Representative Jordan, and Representative Nadler. So a, a pretty wide range from left to right politically, all supporting the House bill that passed a while back. Um, now the Senate has passed some amendments to the House bill, uh, strengthening and expanding some of the uh, some of the provisions, and DOJ has said publicly that they oppose the Senate version. Um, and Whether they will really go to the mattresses on it and, and sort of you know push for a veto or, or what, or whether they will get it if they do is is less clear at this point. But they came out with a pretty strong, unequivocal opposition. So what happens next? It goes back to the Senate. Maybe it goes to a House-Senate conference committee. Something's going to have to get worked out. Um, but we're not there yet. And meanwhile, the authorities are down and DOJ has complained that the uh, lapse has affected their ability to do investigations and just this morning we have a, r- a reminder of the risks of terrorism as the Attorney General and Director Ray had a press conference about the Saudi uh, uh, Air Force pilot who shot people in at the Pensacola Air Base. He now has links to Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula uh, that were found when the Bureau was able to crack his uh, iPhone.
1: Yeah, so there's it's a lot a, it's a, there. A quite a they, mess. they cracked his iPhone. They, they cracked his iPhone by uh um uh even though he had shot it uh, in, in an effort yes. to make sure that it couldn't be cracked, uh, cracked. Um and they've apparently cracked it in the last few weeks, uh which means that Apple's uh, contrived inability or unwillingness to cooperate in uh, cracking the uh, uh the iPhone delayed the investigation of an Al-Qaeda connection to an act of terrorism
2: on U.S. soil
1: for several months.
2: That is more or less what the attorney general said uh, this morning, just literally a few minutes ago in his press uh, conference. God bless him.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm channeling uh, William Barr, which is uh, you, uh, you know, Stuart... all things considered <laughs> better than, than average. <laughs>
2: right. Uh, and, and so you know that is going to sort of be an overlay i think for for some of these concerns here i mean the the issues really are in the number of cases uh in which the amicus would be expected to participate absent a finding from the court um and i think doj's concern is that uh the 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 senate uh amendment is really going to slow things down and interfere with the speed and agility that is the government says so essential here and so forth anyway that that's the what I think is going to be the gist of DOJ's objection and that kind of objection is particularly trenchant historically in the context of terrorism investigations which can move fast so um, you know with this Pensacola overlay and more broadly you know it, it's not clear to me how this is going to play out. Um, one thing I think is for certain is that no matter what happens, whether they do pass legislation or uh, with a lot of extra conditions in it or whether they don't, um, this is going to be sort of a, a fairly long term issue. This is not going to get squared away and buttoned up really in the next few weeks or months. This, this thing could go on for a while uh, with the fallout, you know, extending well into next year. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a shame i I, I think um, Congress doesn't do uh,
1: conference committees anymore apparently uh, oh, uh, yeah. uh, there there must be some power dynamic that is served by getting rid of conference committees or maybe they, they have can do so like little an informal <laughs> yes uh, and and the leadership gets to decide all those questions rather than handing it off to uh, conference uh, uh, committee members uh, maybe maybe that's what's going on uh, but in this case this Kind of ping pong game uh, yeah. has not served us well, and I I, I will I will say uh, um, that uh, whatever value there may have been to putting national security authorities through sunset provisions is almost certainly gone now. It was it was the product of a, of a time when there was a substantial middle to uh, to Congress, and you could expect that that Congress would want to do the responsible thing. Um, but in the current situation where, uh, there is more and more partisan uh, uh, bickering and where everybody is using these sunsets, not to talk about the substance of the provisions that are being renewed, but about other things, basically we've got, we've got a hostage. Uh, how much ransom do we want? uh, uh and, uh, that kind of thing might have been predictable when sunsets came along but it's now utterly guaranteed and it means that uh, we are taking some of our most valuable and important authorities and saying hey how about um holding them up for ransom every five years at the hands of whichever extremist wing of congress uh,
2: is currently uh, exercising influence it makes no sense Yeah, Stuart, let me just say a couple of things on on top of that. The first is that, you know, obviously these these sunsets were enacted mainly as a power distribution mechanism between the two branches, legislative and executive, with sort of the default, which is always the easiest thing, meaning the authorities lapse, and that would shift power to the Congress and away from the president. It has produced the results that you just described – um, since i love to look on the bright side of things and and strive for a note of optimism in, other, in a fairly bleak landscape otherwise there is an, a large amount of bipartisan consensus on many core provisions here as reflected in that that house bill uh, and the senate you know bill is is a significant piece of frosting on that cake. But I mean one one note of optimism is when you have Jim Jordan and Jerry Nadler co-sponsoring legislation and agreeing together on things. You know, that feels to me like a sign that at least after a lot of backing and forthing and and some you know some craziness there, there does seem to be emerging potentially some bipartisan consensus around the use of these authorities. I don't want to overstate it, and I, I don't deny all of the stuff you just said. But for people sort of looking for the long run about how these debates may play out, there is at least a kernel of potential bipartisan consensus that could, if it's well-fostered and, and given care and feeding and attention, possibly emerge um, You know, over the next several months or years. And, and maybe that could be a sign that things could get better ahead. I'm not going to put uh, a lot of money on it, but, but I do note it as a potential kernel of something that could grow into something broader if it's treated correctly.
1: Or it could die tomorrow because apparently the privacy groups are have gone in to say, hey, you know, there was a, a an amendment that we lost by one vote in the Senate. Let's put it in in the House and make the Senate vote on it again. Well, Stuart, I so, You are right, and
2: uh, <laughs> then the ping pong game will continue <laughs> through the for a long time to come. You are. I, I can't deny it. <laughs>
3: All
1: right, uh, decoupling proceeds apace. Uh, there were a lot of developments involving. Um, Chip manufacturing and uh, um, Huawei uh, and the, uh, the the effort in uh, the part of the U.S. government to decouple uh, uh, from uh, uh, China and to ensure that there's a U.S. Uh, supply chain for chips. Um, I think the. The one thing that is worth that, that I'll start it out with is the Commerce Department has now released uh, or finished a uh, an export regulation that says you can't use American software and chip manufacturing equipment to build chips for Huawei, essentially. Uh, uh, and now there's a, there's a long history here. Uh, uh, the US government uh, uh, dominated chip manufacturing equipment. This is the stuff that goes into the fabs that makes the, the, the chips. Uh, and in order to en- encourage export sales of that equipment they allowed people to move the um uh, equipment to places like tsmc in taiwan uh, and uh, said and um you can apply export controls u.s export controls on the product rather than on the uh, equipment Uh, and that rule more or less worked Uh, but when the trump administration started looking at ways to squeeze Huawei a little harder than they have, they said, uh, we we need to tighten up that rule. And the problem from the point of view of US industry was that might make US chip making equipment less attractive. It It might have an impact on US chip manufacturers. And it looks as though, and I suspect this is all tied together. Uh, the Commerce Department has now said, no, we're going to write a rule that doesn't make any general provisions. It doesn't change any of the general provisions about export controls of chip equipment or uh, uh, chips. Uh, uh, But instead, we're just going to say uh, there's a special rule for Huawei. And that was meant to avoid harming U.S. industry, I suspect. Uh, uh, And it looks as though they may have also... Uh, at the very same time, perhaps not coincidentally, reached an agreement with uh, the biggest chip manufacturer and the most advanced chip manufacturer in the world, TSMC, in Taiwan about building a uh, a fab in Arizona. Nick, uh, um, is, what what's the background on that?
4: I don't think we have enough details, but I bet it's just the observation that um, when you're dealing with the high-end fabs, your cost is in the building, and your
1: personnel cost is very low. The cost, the real cost, is the equipment. I can't remember. It's either ten million dollars of investment to produce one job uh, in a fab, or maybe it's a hundred million. Uh, but it's an enormous amount of investment just to create a single job. So uh, there, there are going to be like fifteen hundred uh, uh, jobs in this yeah. ten billion um, dollar fab. And right? so.
4: As such, you really care more about where you can extract the most benefits from local government, tax reasons, et cetera. And I think the realization is there are some real advantages to being in the U.S. In particular for TSMC, um, one of their biggest customers is AMD for their advanced process. And AMD is a very American company. And so all those stuff would be export controlled anyway.
1: Yeah, so I I suspect that uh, the narrow relief may have been part of the negotiations, you never know. Um I'm, I am I here's a here's a strange fact. Uh, uh the reason there are so many chip companies, chip fabs in Arizona because uh, uh uh Intel has a bunch of them there is it's the largest city in the US that basically doesn't have natural disasters. It's not in an earthquake zone. It never gets hurricanes. It barely gets rain. Um, And so uh, you can be reasonably sure that apart from needing air conditioning, you aren't going to have any problems with the weather.
4: And for fabs, you already have huge amounts of effort spent into controlling the air because a single speck of dust on a chip will kill a chip.
1: Yeah. So China's not taking this lion down. They have a retaliation plan that they have now dusted off, uh, and they have begun the process of designating several uh, U.S tech companies as unreliable suppliers uh, by which they mean uh, uh, companies they would not like to have in their supply chain in the long run although they also seem to have added in you can also become an unreliable supplier if you start moving your supply chain out of china um uh, which is um Has you know, this is one of those uh, retaliation measures where you're using your current leverage in a way that will cause you long-term pain. Because once people realize that starting a supply chain in China means that the Chinese government will punish you for making economic decisions to take it someplace else, uh, it it adds to the disincentive to uh, continue or to have new suppliers in China.
4: Well, I'm glad that such stupidity is not restricted to the U.S.,
1: Oh no! <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna see uh, so much stupidity around uh, chip manufacturing because it's it's like the steel of the twenty first century. Every government wants to have it. They pay more than it's probably worth to make sure that they have a domestic industry. Um, and it is already a business where the massive investment requirement is the principal disincentive to competitors en- entering the uh, uh, the market. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna see a lot of that. Meanwhile, um, the U.S. government is sending a lot of professors to jail uh, uh, over their high-tech ties to China. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, as as our representative of academic America, <laughs> uh, how do you feel about that? <laughs>
4: I think it's overblown because it's not the ties to China. It's failing to document the ties to China. So when I fill out grants, I have to include a current and pending section. What is my other grant support? My institution has understand, ICSI knows what my other sources of income are, because that's declared for conflict of interest purposes. And the latest is just another one of those where a professor had major links to China, significant payments was involved in multiple companies and never disclosed it. And it's not the links to China. It's the not documenting the links to China. I'd be quite willing to take a few million dollars from the Chinese government. I'll just be sure to fill out the proper form so that everybody knows it.
1: Yeah, plus tenure opportunities opening up.
4: (laughs) Well, given that I'm a lecturer at Berkeley and Berkeley is supposedly extending the hiring freeze to all lecturers, um, who knows? I may need a job next semester.
1: Oh, well, you, you can't retire on your, uh, uh, royalties from the cyber law podcast. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> so David, uh, a decoupling wouldn't be complete without a, uh, a spat over cyber espionage and COVID-19.
2: What's the latest? Well, so, you know, we talked about this a while back and I sort of, you know, said I was shocked, shocked that, uh, uh. People's Republic of China and Iran and others were stealing uh, biotechnology and COVID nineteen research, um, and I think that's still the case. the The interesting aspect of it that's been reported recently is that uh, supercomputers are apparently being hacked and hijacked. And it isn't totally clear from the reporting whether the motivation for for that kind of uh, effort is literally to steal the compute power and and run calculations uh, on the supercomputers from afar, or perhaps more likely uh, to find things that have been left behind when uh, governments or others are running their own calculations. These kinds of supercomputers are useful for running certain kinds of very demanding calculations and simulations, uh, possibly including uh, epidemiological you know, modeling of how viruses spread, uh, also uh, for simulating you know, uh, certain kinds of weapons, technology, nuclear weapons and the like, uh, or so I've read in the, in the media. So they, they seem to be expanding efforts to steal information or resources from supercomputers worldwide, uh, and that's the latest sort of twist on this, on this story.
1: So the U.S. making an issue
2: of this right now, I wonder if
1: if it isn't sort of setting the stage or at least firing a shot across the bow to say, you know, we don't like you stealing stuff. But if you screw up a vaccine project by mm-hmm. messing up the uh, the computer, uh, let alone bricking uh, 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 computers <laughs> being used for COVID-19 <laughs> research... Uh, it, you will have crossed a line that no one has crossed up to now. And and given the emotion around uh, the coronavirus and the um, concerns about China going back to uh, the first uh, failures to disclose some of the information, uh, that could be a pretty explosive issue for uh, uh, for China and maybe for Iran.
2: You know, I hadn't really thought of that, Stuart, but now that you mention it, it's it's actually kind of an interesting idea. The, the president and the Trump administration have sort of waxed and waned on the overall commentary and attitudes around China. There was a pretty strong effort, obviously, to call it the Wuhan virus and to emphasize that it might have come from this lab. I'm reading reporting that says that that has begun to be de-emphasized. Um, this could very well set the stage for uh, a sort of a different attack along the lines you're talking about and frankly i mean it would be i think a significant escalation um and you know a a different level of bad behavior to damage a supercomputer doing research into COVID 19 and that really would probably justifiably earn worldwide condemnation so it is possible that that's what's going on here too
1: yeah So, Mark, while all of this very serious stuff is going on, uh, 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 France is doing nothing but passing uh, COVID-19 legislation and uh, threatening uh, million-euro fines against uh, U.S. social uh, media platforms for failing to remove hate speech. Uh, They are defying Brussels and Washington and Silicon Valley. Uh, so they obviously must be enthusiastic about it. What, what exactly is motivating this?
3: Well, what's motivating it is uh, increasing concern about the, the conduct and behavior of the online companies. Um, as you know, right now, if you operate a, a social network in France and it's full of hate speech, the individuals who posted that stuff might face some legal consequences in France. But you, as the operator of the social network, are unlikely to face any legal jeopardy there. Well, that's what's going to change on July 1st of of this year when this new law becomes effective. And it's going to require the online companies to take down certain, quote, manifestly illegal material within 24 hours of being notified. It, It applies to hate speech and material promoting terrorism or child abuse. And the companies have to remove child abu- abuse images and terrorist propaganda within one hour when notified by public authorities. And penalties, as you say, uh, for violations could be as high as 125 million euro. But it's even worse. Uh, they could be fined up to 4% of their global revenue if, after audits, the country's audiovisual regulator finds serious and repeated flaws in their content moderation systems. Um, so it's a, it, it's a pretty serious uh, piece of legislation. The free speech advocates obviously say it's overkill. Uh, and, and, and this new liability for illegal speech in France will, will undoubtedly get some nasty material off the internet, but at the price of removing some content, perhaps a lot of content uh, that might be perfectly legitimate speech, but, but the European lawmakers seem increasingly comfortable with that trade-off as they generally move their internet policy towards greater content regulation. This is not an outlier. Uh, the, the law is, a, is a, almost a copy of the 2017 German Nets DG law that also said take down the illegal content within 24 hours. Um, and the, the United Kingdom is moving towards legislation that would put the a duty of care on internet companies that would also require them to be responsible for illegal and harmful content. The European Union itself is in the final stages of passing a terrorist content directive, and, and that would require the companies to take down terrorist material within an hour of receiving notice from an authorized government agency. Uh, the French law just basically jumped the gun on that. It took a, a one step earlier than the European Union was aiming to do it itself. Uh, and the Digital Services Act is, is going to clearly impose greater liability on these uh, online companies for illegal material on, on their system. So, so th- this is a, a movement in Europe towards more and more content regulation. The only thing I would say is that it doesn't actually make new categories of speech illegal. I, I mean, the, the, the speech itself is already illegal under French, German, or European law. Uh, and all it does is make the online companies responsible for removing it uh, so it's not entirely um uh, an affront to free speech but it does it does go farther than we're likely to go here in the united states
1: so it 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 does represent i think the near total collapse of section 230 immunity everywhere but the united states uh, uh, the the Intellectual underpinnings of Section Two Hundred and Thirty are basically gone, and it's a question of how much liability are you going to impose for what kind of uh, uh, user speech, uh, um, and that's the that's what's in negotiation.
3: The only thing I'd say about that is that you could you could get rid of Two Hundred and Thirty in the United States tomorrow, and it wouldn't do anything about hate speech because, of course, hate speech here in the United States is is not illegal. There's Supreme Court cases, you know, ruling that that um, you know, hate speech is it has got its own legal protection. So making making online companies responsible for hate speech on their systems would be great, but they're not responsible for it because it's not it's not illegal. So I I don't think the 230 fix is going to accomplish what a lot of reformers think it will.
1: Yeah, it's true that they can still. Uh, well, they, they, it it is effectively illegal. There are things you can't say on any social media that has any reach because they've all agreed to take down things that they don't like and call it hate speech. Uh, um, and that uh, and and those rules are basically driven by European standards of hate speech. So we have no more freedom of speech on the social media that matter. Than Europeans, despite having a First Amendment that the the Europeans don't have. Fair point. Okay, um, so I, I more uh, uh, ideas out of uh, Europe, uh, ill-conceived ideas. I think uh, there is a uh, report from a policy committee of the uh, European Parliament. That tries to look at the future of technology. It has a pretty persuasive uh, and interesting discussion of where technology is going to go. The full digitization in the next uh, fifteen or twenty years of uh, the economy, um, uh, and they try they 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 lay out a proposal for how Europe should respond to that, uh, uh, that movement. Uh, uh, And if, if I understand it right, uh, uh, they are suggesting that that this, this uh, uh, committee suggests, well, what we really need to do is to build a European firewall and, um, Use it to keep out speech that we don't like from anywhere else in the world, just like the Chinese do. I I, I was kind of astonished at the blasé invocation of China's Great Firewall as though it was uh, uh, just one uh, option among uh, reasonable policy choices.
4: Oh, and it's a reasonable policy choice because it will favor our companies and therefore help gain local things. So it was not even the, hey, let's do the Chinese firewall censorship. Let's do the Chinese firewall censorship to help our local companies.
1: Well, that's never that's never far from the surface with European policymaking.
3: It's worth mentioning that this is not the first time that idea has surfaced. In, in lots of other policy discussions, there's been references to the, an internet cloud or a European uh, uh, internet that's that's controlled by Europe, um, but but this is the first time that they've used the two key phrases of firewall and like China, uh, and that's always been kind of latent in their ideas. But uh, these these guys maybe because they were outside consultants, uh, you know, uh, l- 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 let the cat out of the bag and let people see what they were really talking about. I'm not sure it means that the idea is off the table and people won't think about it after all ISPs do yeah. a lot of filtering these days and Australia had a big issue about 10 years ago about ISP filtering and so it's it's not something that that is is off the policy table but but the as you say the blasé invocation of China as a as a model for this uh, is a little startling
1: yeah It's an interesting report, kind of a a good assessment. Uh, I thought it was a reasonable assessment of where the future is going. Uh, And uh, most of the recommendations for action are thoroughly bureaucratic and dumb. Uh, They have this long, elaborate set of things that need to be done for the long term, for the medium term. And uh, there are things like, well, you should update your uh, visionary communication program in the medium term. And then in the long term, uh, you have to do update three of the visionary communication program, which we're writing. It's all garbage, uh, uh, except for for this sort of shocking suggestion that uh, uh, China's the right uh, uh, role model. Well, okay, Uh, CISA, the uh, DHS's uh, uh, Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, uh, has written a pretty good paper, just six uh, uh, pages long, about online voting, that is you know that just pours cold water on remote voting uh, again uh but uh in a fairly authoritative way
2: uh, uh david
1: Nick uh what do you see in this uh this uh, release
2: well for for me it's it's exactly what you said it's sort of more of the same. I think most- Nick will uh, weigh in more authoritatively, but I think most experts in voting security have long been railing against internet voting as a safe and secure method. Uh, CISA has been doing so. And this, this little PowerPoint document that they created with the Bureau apparently and pushed out pretty widely is extremely strong in just doing exactly what you said, pouring cold water on the idea that this is a viable way to go. It's a very strong statement. Um, but it's not, as far as I can tell, different in its basic conclusion, from things that have been said by uh, government agencies and others for quite some time now.
1: Yeah, but you can't say it often enough.
2: <laughs> no, no, I, and I don't mean to denigrate it. I just, but it is, um, yeah, it's just a very strong statement of a theme we've heard.
4: Um, there are a couple of interesting minor notes, though, is that the version that Kim Get- Zetter got um, and published. Um, the public release was watered back a little bit, apparently, to not offend the uh, snake oil
1: salesman shilling this. Sh- um. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was about they were they were they they had had a sentence in there that that was really cut uh, quite conclusively down on electronic ballot return, which is the the full vote on uh, uh, online thing, uh, and they yes. took that sentence and- out.
4: The problem is, is there's really no way to do electronic ballot return right, that um, the big, big worry is rule number one on voting fraud. We want it to cost O of N. If you want to change N ballots, it should take N times the work as changing one. And electronic return fails that number one test.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Scales too easily.
1: All right, let's do let's do some uh, relatively quick hits. Uh, uh, David, the uh, President Trump extended the telecom national security executive order. Um, yep. uh, this is it, he didn't change it; he just extended it. Nope. So, the, uh, is there any news in that?
2: No, it's just carrying on the IEPA order that he issued before. It's targeting Huawei and ZTE, but there's also some licenses granted that uh, create an exception. So, it's uh, it's sort of the expected thing to carry it forward. Yeah,
1: now, that executive order could turn out to be very important over the long run. Uh, I'm sort of surprised that uh, it requires uh, uh, regular uh, uh, extensions. Uh, I guess right. that's IEPA. Uh, so maybe that's the answer. He has to redeclare right? uh, the emergency. Yes, that's right. Well, I think we can. I, I think no matter who wins the election in November, that emergency will continue through 2025 and beyond.
2: Uh, yeah, I I agree. I I've actually been doing some thinking about that, and I, I I around the continuity of national security policy, no matter who wins the election. And this is an area I think that's going to be pretty stable. <laughs> okay, so this week in bashing NSO, Nick, take it away. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, NSO, my favorite purveyor of digital weapon systems. For the longest time, they've claimed uh, we don't sell to U.S. cops. We don't sell Pegasus to U.S. cops. Turns out they just relabel it as something else and sell it anyway, and um, Motherboard got a copy of the sales docs through a public records request. Um, Turns out they don't get too many customers because they um, overcharge, and also with NSO, you fake share. So when the Middle Eastern uh, rectal cranial inversion cases um, (laughs) take and get on Citizen Lab's radar, uh, it also disrupts the cops. And then there's this story about some officials in Ghana being prosecuted for having done business with them. Um, this was
1: probably real. Well, I, I looked at that, and and, and, and and you know, you you might say NSO is overpriced, but these officials didn't. They thought, why don't we buy it for a million dollars and then charge four million dollars to our government, which is why they're going to jail, it looks like.
4: Yeah, nothing like a little bit of embezzlement to uh, add to your uh, jail time.
1: All right. And um, if you're a celebrity, uh, uh, your, uh, your data is at risk from a Compromise of a law firm, uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, for uh, uh, lawyers, this is pretty scary. The firm uh, was uh, uh, Grubman Shire, uh, which represents uh, a bunch of A-list c- celebrities, Rod Stewart, Lil Nas X, uh, uh, who ain't on my A-list, but must be on somebody's, Robert <laughs> De Niro. <laughs> uh <laughs> And, uh, and they, they also claim they have stuff that references President Trump, but they, they released some stuff uh, that references President Trump and it's, uh, it, it's totally boring. Uh, it, it's just people saying, uh, uh, you know, can I get on Celebrity, uh, Celebrity Apprentice and things like that. Um, uh, so I'm not sure they have. They claim they have more that will be more interesting. But uh, this this is a ransomware outfit that is uh, saying we've locked up your data. We'll give it to you, but we're going to release all the confidential information about your clients, which would be pretty scary for both the law firm and the clients if they had embarrassing legal problems that they managed to uh, navigate with settlements and NDAs. So uh, there may be more to this story as we go on, um, and then there'll be lawsuits against the, um, the law firm, I, I predict. I guess we're obliged to continue to cover cell phone COVID-19 contact tracing, but I'm really beginning to think that this whole Google, Apple thing, uh, and maybe the whole idea of using cell phones to facilitate contact tracing has jumped the shark. Uh, uh, the people who have done the most contact tracing and have apps that have been most widely adopted, uh, countries like Iceland, countries like India, uh, are not using uh, the gapple solution. They're insisting on getting GPS data. Um, they, they say, yeah, it's not that helpful um and uh and so uh, and meanwhile google and apple have managed to kick off a giant privacy fight where there probably shouldn't be a privacy fight by being so stingy and um engineer-focused in their uh, uh, design of this thing to the point where it isn't worth very much, and everybody thinks it's going to invade their privacy. Uh, I'm just not sure that anybody's going to adopt the GAPL solution once it gets uh, uh, gets released.
4: Um, And I'm inclined to agree, and I've seen a great hypothesis on Twitter that since the GPS type stuff isn't really doing any better, that what Apple and Google really did was just make the system so unusable that the bad ideas never took off.
1: Yeah, but they and and maybe that would these bad ideas would have been subjected Google and Apple to a lot of pressure if they were the only thing in the marketplace. But now Google and Apple can say oh, you want us to make it easy for these contact tracing apps to work? Fine. We've got a whole structure for you. It doesn't work very well, and it doesn't work the way you want it to. It's our alternative. And so instead of trying to beat something with nothing, they're beating something with something. Well, sad, Uh, but we may have also passed the point where it contact tracing was going to really make a difference, which is the case with practically all the policy debates we've had about COVID-19 so far. Uh, but uh, What,
4: just because gross incompetence uh, has resulted in close to 100,000 dead in the U.S. already?
1: Uh, <sighs> you know, I, you know I'm, I'm increasingly of the view that uh, uh, the Chinese could have told us everything right up front and we'd still have 100,000 dead. Uh the CDC could have designed better tests faster and they'd still wouldn't have gotten to market in time to to produce what the testing we need and we'd still have 100,000 dead. We could have uh, uh you know uh, a President Fauci and uh we'd have 100,000 dead. This this virus is doing what it's doing.
4: I strongly disagree because I'm from California. Yeah. We have 30 dead in San Francisco. How many died in New York City? Yep.
1: Uh, But who knows? Who knows what what, caused it, too, right? Uh, uh, This is... uh, Georgia opened up. Everybody talked about the bloodbath that was going to be in Georgia, and they have tiny numbers of dead and infected as well. There's something else going on here. We just don't understand this, uh, and the virus is smarter than our policy thinkers. Uh, um, uh, so I'm just, I, I'm, I'm not convinced we we know what uh, what went wrong here. Uh, but uh, I regret all the time I spent thinking about uh, using contact tracing on phones. But. let's close with this. This is so great. Who knew that NSA director Paul Nakasani was such a player? David, uh, what's going on?
2: Yes. So there's a story out that uh, someone is, uh, well, let's just say someone named Paul Nakasani is looking for love on the internet, catfishing and trolling for uh, people to give up their email addresses and and surely uh, shortly thereafter their social security number and banking information as well. Um, I have it on very good authority that this is not in fact General Paul Nakasone himself. But uh, in case anyone is wondering, someone impersonating him. Uh, but it, it is a clever criminal scheme. Um, and it, according to the reporting, you know, a couple of people thought seriously about responding. Uh, to this uh, this lovelorn four-star general uh, trolling out on the internet but um, so if you do get such an email don't fall for it it's not him. You, you can you can look him up. <laughs> he
1: he has to be the hottest NSA director in recent memory, right? Uh,
2: I, I'm not saying that's a high oh, bar. <laughs> I I have served multiple NSA directors, and I'm not going to take a position on hotness across any of them. But I'm sure that uh, he will be very pleased to hear you say that. But I
1: I, I, I will note one of the quotes from his uh, his email uh, when uh, uh, his uh, uh, target expressed some skepticism. He said what's wrong with you? Don't you have regard for my reputation? <laughs> I also serve as the United States Army Cyber Command. So I see no reason why you're right. still saying rubbish. dual hatted Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, uh, women just love those dual-headed guys. Thank you all for that. Uh, We're going to turn to Peter Singer, uh, whose book with August Cole is called Burn In, our novel of the real robotic revolution. Uh, this is not the first book uh, uh, Book of its kind, and we'll talk about what kind it is in a minute. Uh, um, uh, uh, Peter uh, has also been on the Cyber Law podcast to talk about his first book, uh, Ghost Fleet. Uh, and uh, uh, Peter, uh, why don't I just start with the question uh, what kind of book is this? It's a little Tom Clancy and it's a little uh, uh, policy wonk uh, uh, prescription.
0: Yeah, so it's a cross of a novel and nonfiction. Uh, So you have the story of an FBI agent hunting terrorists through the streets of a future Washington, D.C., Um, but baked into the story are more than 300 uh, research explanations and predictions uh, so I'm a parent. It's a little bit like um, sneaking fruit and vegetables into a smoothie, except in this case, it's a mix of entertainment and the latest research about new issues that are going to shape all our lives. And so you get the fun of the story, but you learn everything from how does AI actually work to uh, what are the future of cybersecurity threats to even how might um, your kids' toys look like 10 years from now?
1: Yeah, so in your note to me, you called it useful fiction. Is 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 it? Um, it and it is one step back from Clancy, who was much more plot driven and much less interested in describing stuff. Although he did spend, you know, uh, ten pages sometimes describing cool new technology.
0: Well, we got to be clear whether we're talking about early or late Clancy here. <laughs> yeah. um, no, so let's this. It's. Um, First, you judge it on the the, with useful fiction. First, it it has to be good fiction. You have to have a a, a great, fun story. You've got to have compelling characters. You've got to um, make sure that people want to keep on the ride. But what makes it useful is that um, and different from Clancy is that you got to show your work. So uh, it actually comes with the end notes to document everything that's there. That also means that there's the um, no vaporware rule, every single technology in it, every single uh, place, uh, even the types of attacks that play out, all are drawn from the real world and have, just like you would in a nonfiction book, the end note um, to prove so. Uh, And so you've got this this dual journey in building the book um, where, you know, we're creating a I'm just really excited to share the main character uh, at the center of it, Lara Keegan. She's a bit of a badass, Um, but also you've got a villain who's going after IoT vulnerabilities that, as listeners of your show are very familiar with, are real, are there, and it's going to change the nature of cyber threats. But you have uh, these 28 um, pages of endnotes uh, to document it. And so on the nonfiction side, you're doing everything from um, pulling up vulnerability reports to doing interviews of uh, water systems engineers from Washington, D.C., uh, who you know will tell you things that uh, really is quite spooky when it comes to the bu- vulnerabilities that are baked in right now.
1: Well, so this is not, this is not the only two works you've done here, you also did an introduction to the uh, Cyber Solarium Commission's report that was only, I don't know, three or four pages long, uh, but was a similar kind of Glimpse of the future, uh, uh, in a relatively, you know, kind of scenario-friendly uh, um, uh, description of the future. Uh, so this is clearly a niche that uh, um, uh, is serving you well in terms of uh, your policy influence.
0: That opening to the solarium is actually drawn from burn-in. So you have uh, essentially a first for both U.S. government documents and science fiction uh, when they're coming together in that way. Um, so that we actually started on this journey of realizing that, that fiction could be useful, and you know, for the intelligence people in the space, we call it ficit. So if you've got sigint, signals intelligence; human, human intelligence. FICINT is basically uh, using the combination of narrative and research analysis as a tool. I need to be clear here. It, it just like you would not only want SIGINT or only want Human, it's just one tool, but it adds to it. And um, it's a tool that uh, has value for a variety of reasons. Uh, the research shows that people are, um, uh, it has an effect on them. Uh, in terms of, uh, the, in a world of complexity, it's a way of sharing research that people connect and understand. Um, they call this synthetic environments. The second is that, um, it's more likely to be read. Uh, the, you know, cold reality of it is that no one talks about, um, uh, no one recommends a PowerPoint to read by the pool, but they will recommend a novel. But the point of this is that it's also useful because it's baking in research to it. And um, we saw this, you know, Vernon is isn't even out yet when you and I are talking. And it's already been woven into the Solarium Commission to, we've briefed the real world lessons of it to groups that range from um, JSOC, the group that got Bin Laden, to Cyber Command. With our prior book, Ghost Fleet, uh you know, I, I'll put it this way. I've I've actually been on your show and talked about both fiction and nonfiction. Um, you know, I've done books on cybersecurity. I've done books on um, social media weaponization. Um, but the novels have actually had a greater policy impact. They've been the ones that have gotten me invited to brief um, at the White House Situation Room or to testify to Congress. Uh, sparked a GAO investigation. Um, the Navy even named a $3.6 billion ship program, Ghost Fleet. So with this new book, Burn In, we've leaned into that. Uh, every part of it, the, the design of it, the scenes of it are constantly trying to hit that. What's going to be interesting? What's going to keep you up late at night reading it? But also because there's an the end note, What's going to keep you, if you're on the policy side late at night, to go, ooh, hold it, this nightmare scenario, could it be real? Oh, crap, there's the end note to show that it is real.
1: So uh, here's a question that I wasn't expecting to ask, but uh, do you do paid placements? Do you have defense contractors who come around and say, you know, for $20,000, you could include me in your next book?
0: Uh, If you'd like to rep me, but no, no, that's not um, how it works. It's actually the opposite is um, uh, the no vaporware rule and the pointing out vulnerabilities actually sometimes makes people uh, really mad. Um, vaporware, you know, too often in the real world and, and also um, in, uh, you know, whether it's marketing pitches or uh, military or intelligence community war games, you know, they, they often kind of wave their hands and they come up with something that's, that's fictional and we're like, no, 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 we can only pull from something that's already out there or already at prototype stage. And it's the All same right. thing in terms of um, a vulnerability. You know, everybody wants to talk about their latest wonder weapon. We're the ones going. Well, actually, here's how someone can hack it.
1: So let me uh, let me challenge your 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 claim of having done the research because uh, I thought the the the, the most amusing uh, use of AI on autonomous vehicles uh, in the uh, uh, the book was the suggestion that drug dealers would use little. Uh, 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 submersibles that would uh, deliver drugs to people through their sewage pipes and pop up the drugs in their toilet. Uh, uh, Is there actually something underway that would correspond to that uh, uh, criminal enterprise?
0: I'm not sure. Sorry, to be clear, that's not what we have in the book. Um, In the book, we actually have drug dealer use of it for delivery via small drones, um, and that is pulled from you know we've seen examples of that everywhere from uh, delivering it into prisons um to uh cross border in europe and actually just last week um down in arizona a border patrol got a drone that uh caught a drone that was being used to move um uh amphetamines across the border back and forth is kind so of so um, i'm gonna uh, challenge you on that in, in I, the I, book I... in the book though the there is a character who says okay she's observing everything that's happening aerial." And she says, you know what? We need to instead go underground. uh, And that if she was she was in that case, what? So we've not seen drug dealer use. We have seen sewer bots that are used by um, uh, companies as inspecting the pipes and moving things through them that way. And so we've also seen in the military side concern about them being used to, uh, move IEDs back and forth. So in the book, in the scenario, you don't have criminals yet doing the, the underground.
1: That's true. Yeah. You you, you talked about it in a slightly speculative way. So maybe that was your, uh, signal that it hadn't happened yet. Uh, I thought it was fascinating and, and, and quite smart. I mean, sure. Everybody, everybody has a, uh, um, a connected device that they never thought of as uh, a part of the intelligent network uh, uh, in their home. Uh, and uh, yes, you could use it to deliver IEDs uh, uh, very personally uh, and up close to uh, to people. Uh, let me step back and talk about the things that you, you do predict. Uh, uh, I think it's fair you uh, to say that you think that the robotics revolution is going to produce Mass unemployment uh, for people in retail, people who do engage in physical labor, and I'm sure this, this broke your heart, for lawyers.
0: <laughs> so... What we did is actually created a a database of every single job automation report that we could find out there. Uh, There's some 1300 in all from groups that range from uh, World Bank and uh, to McKinsey, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Oxford University, and each of them have their different projections of what they think automation is gonna do to um, jobs. Uh, At the high end, for example, Is um, Oxford University looked at 702 different professions, found um, 47% are going to be uh, replaced or displaced uh, within our lifetime. At the low end um, is OECD that said, no, 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 it's only going to be 9%. 9% is still a pretty significant amount. So, whichever number you care about, we're already starting to see this kind of transition and we're going to see even more so. And so, what we did is took that research. And then you take those numbers and you make it real through the fiction. And so the main character's husband is um, a contract lawyer, Uh, and that's a way of one illustrating how the data shows that it's not just going to be you know blue collar jobs like factory workers or um, truck drivers that we're seeing it in other professions. We've actually seen it uh, in a a major way towards um, uh, paralegals already. But what you can then do with the fiction is play out, what does that actually mean? How does that actually feel? So that, he'd been a contract lawyer. This is one of the particular areas that uh, we're starting to see automation hit within the legal field. Um, He did everything right. Went to a good school, got good grades, got a good paying job, and then he's bottomated. And at the start of the story, he's working remotely from home doing gig work. Uh, something a lot of us feel like right now in in coronavirus land. And so the issue is not just the number, it's what you can play with the fiction is how does that hit his self-identity? How does that hit his marriage? How does that hit the way he's parenting? How does that hit the politics that he has? And then we see ripple out from that. And so to me, again, that shows kind of the value of the back and forth of doing the hard work of the research but then you can carry it across, rather than in some, you know, hundred-page white paper that no one's going to read. You can carry it across through a novel and also sort of hit the emotional side.
1: Yeah, I I thought that that one of the nice moments in that in the book was when uh, uh, the uh, the the super corporation that uh, employed him for this these gig jobs. Uh, uh, out of the blue, sent him iron pills because they thought that uh, he uh, was in need of an iron supplement based on his performance. So the kind of AI-enabled super paternalism that comes along with uh, um, what are essentially uh, not very good jobs uh, is is all wrapped up uh, in a personal story.
0: And it also hits one of the, the themes coming out of it is this um, question of Uh, the future and the technologies that we're developing and and applying into it is the very thin line between utopian and dystopian views of the future. Uh, And so on one hand, you know, we get all of these you know great ideas on uh, how we're going to make people's lives better, and we'll gather this data. And, you know, I thought that's actually where you were going with the sewer thing. You know, one of the creepier technologies to me is a smart toilet, but they're putting those into place and they'll monitor your health. To they um, they, they, they they have
1: a toilet version of facial recognition in Japan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the, or you think about all the different ways that we're talking about monitoring um, employees and everything from their health to uh, their emotional status. And the same thing, face recognition is being applied in security, being applied in law enforcement, policing. Kentucky Fried Chicken is also talking about applying it into their restaurants to see if customers, both who they are and how much they're enjoying themselves. And so, you know, on one hand, you see people going, isn't this going to be great? And then, of course, you can also quickly go, wow, this feels very creepy. And it particularly... Depends on where you are in that society, and that's one of the things that uh, again you can explore with fiction. Is you can look at it from different perspectives. Okay, how does it look from the point of view of the cop? How does it look from the point of view of the citizen who's being policed? How does it look from the point of view of the parent? And um, that to me is a it's a it's a rich theme to run with in fiction. You know, so this is a different kind of story. I am going to plot spoil. It's not a robot uprising. There's no, you know, all kill all humans moment. It's more about what it means to go through this industrial revolution. So it's rich for fiction, but it's also something that we're all going to be dealing with in our own identities, as you know, be it as citizens, be it as lawyers, be it as uh, parents. So
1: the other, pl- the, the the other, the couple of places I got off the bus, uh, and the, one of the places I got off, and you can you can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, Sex bots, I just, I don't see it. I, I, are you telling me, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of money in uh, uh, tech and sex, but really, uh, you think sex bots are going to be a thing in the next 10, 15 years? Uh,
0: so I don't want to get you into trouble at work, so do it on your home computer. <laughs> <laughs> so just Google, and as you um, uh, Google it, it will autofill How much do they cost? Um, And so, again, not pulled from uh, our own sci-fi dreams, but uh, you have already a market for it. You have already their application into um, strip clubs and uh, uh, even um, uh, dens of other kind of sins. Um, And that is with technology that is not all that great right now move the timeline forward 10 years. And yes, you will be in that space. Um, and so what it what it actually points to me is a, a, a sort of, again, a, a theme that comes out of this, whether it's something uh, like sex bots or a, a driverless car uh, or whatnot, is that every time you get a new technology, you know, be it with the original horseless carriages or, you know, the topic of the show, computers, you get new questions of law and ethics uh, and their questions of, okay, how might that new technology be applied by criminals? Um, We were looking it up. The very first uh, traffic speeding ticket happened in 1896, Um, but you're also going to see it applied by bad guys in larger ways. For example, the very first car bomb uh, was in 1905 they didn't even call them cars then they were horses carriages same thing as we were talking about with robotics you know we so they ha- the, that- hay- the, hay-
1: the Haymarket bombing which is a big deal I mean it killed a lot of Americans in Chicago I guess uh, uh, was uh, a a, 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 a- Carriage with a horse. It was a it was a wagon, uh, an enormous uh, bunch of uh, explosives uh, that blew up in a crowd. Uh, so yeah, we've been we've been doing vehicles yeah, so, uh,
0: bombs for a long time. So you time. get that the, the 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 first car bomb went after the Ottoman Sultan. <laughs> um, uh, but then you get these um, new questions, uh, not just how are criminals going to use them and what are these questions law, but you also now have these new questions with intelligent machines that we really didn't kind of wrestle with before. Um, what are they allowed to do on their own or not? Uh, machine permissibility. And also, who do we hold responsible if things don't work out the way that was planned? Uh, machine accountability. And we're already getting little little early versions of that, for example, uh, with um, the Teslas that, that get in uh, a wreck. Is the driver at fault? Is the designer at fault? Uh, again, and this is first generation. What happens as we move it forward five, ten years um, and so we have that. And then we have this third area, which is also new, which is um, what are you allowed to do or not to your machines? Um, and, you know, you have that, that's where you would put the sex bot question or that's where uh, you even have, um, this is a real question of the laws of war. Do Unmanned systems have a right of self-defense. Well, you and I might go, that's crazy. It's an unmanned system. How can it have a right of self-defense? The U.S. Air Force has said it does have the same right of self-defense as if it's a manned plane. Um, So if Iran, not just if you shoot at one of our drones, but even if you uh, target it with a radar, but don't pull the trigger, we have the right to fire at you first. And what I'm getting at is that these are all these what would have been complete science fiction questions that now are real questions of law. And so in answering them, well, one, we got to understand how the technology works, just like, you know, you're not going to be good at cybersecurity if you can't understand you know the basics of computers. Um, the same thing now, we got to understand uh, some of the attributes of this. We also have to understand where this technology is headed to next. You can't have a law that um, is outdated, uh, that, that you write right now that, that can't evolve with the technology. And so that's why, but also, you know, I recognize most people aren't going to read the, the think tank white paper or going to read the academic study. So we try and take that package it within something that's fun, entertaining, but also they walk away from it learning something.
1: So uh, uh, that, that does raise the question uh, uh, how you actually put this together. I assume you start with some basic idea that you can see coming that you want to talk about, and then you do, the, do some research on what where the future is going and, and some of the technologies. And you st- start asking which of these things can actually turn into plot elements or plot points. Uh, and and uh, you must go back and forth from what the, technolo- the technology you want to talk about and the things you have to say as your characters start doing stuff that you maybe didn't expect uh, um, in the book.
0: It's sort of, it's actually simultaneous. Uh, so you're doing it at the same time. Um, you're building the research, but you're also building the plot, the characters, and the scenes. Um, so you're respecting, you know, the the gods of nonfiction, but also um, Cadmus is the, the Greek god of, of writing. Um, and so uh, sometimes um, inspiration will strike uh, in the real world. And it might be a, um, something that you come across, uh, in your research, um, a, uh, you read about a certain kind of breach that's, that's, uh, happens in the real world or is demonstrated at DEF CON and you go, Ooh, wow. That's, that's something I'm going to build in. Or it might be, um, instead you have a scene, uh, it's, um, whatever union station or it's Starbucks, uh, it takes place there. And so to get the details right, you will pull out, okay, what is Starbucks plans for what it's going to look like 10 years from now. Um, and uh, sometimes it, it might just happen from um, your own personal experience. Uh, you know, It's all set within Washington, D.C. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. area. And so, you know, sometimes you go to places and you'll... Um, Uh, either notice something that you'll put on your little diabolic hat and go, ooh, what if someone did X? Or it might just be a little bit of a detail that sells the scene. Uh, So, you know, we we take people to familiar places in Washington, but also places that some people don't get to go. Uh, So there's a scene where the main character goes to the National Security Council and then goes into the White House Situation Room. And what she thinks about is actually, I'll admit what I was thinking about So, you you get the, as you're going for the first time there, um, the floors at the uh, NSC, um, your shoes squeak. And so, in your head, I was having this dialogue of like, I hope my escort doesn't hear the squeak of my shoes. And then in the White House, you've got this thick carpet. And so, you notice you have this change. And it's this little tiny detail. That to me, you know, sort of takes you, you not only get to see what, you know, what's the rug like in the White House, but also that, that little strangeness of you're in the halls of power, but you're, you're thinking about these these um, little little things um, uh, are popping up in your brain.
1: So I, I, I don't remember, I, I would have thought you would have included a scene where uh, she takes her robot with her to the uh, uh, sit room and some officious uh, security guy says, no electronics, sorry.
0: Oh, well, we've got the, you, you have that, that scene actually at the start where, uh, um, and <laughs> realistic to it. So they try and, uh, we won't plot spoil here, but actually they try and keep it out. But then because uh, a, a senior leader um, says, no, 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 uh, set aside the security issue right now. Um, and so that would never, ever happen that a senior leader would act in a way contrary to best uh, cybersecurity products. Yeah, no
1: more than once a day. I, I agree with you. <laughs> but, uh, so uh, last last question on the technology, because I, I have a, a an interest in this because I actually made a policy proposal that depended on the existence of te- this technology, and I wasn't sure it existed. So let me ask you neighborhood EMP attacks, right? Localized, relatively localized EMPs that take, that brick every computer for a couple miles around. Uh, um, How realistic is that? Is that today or is that soon?
0: Oh man, you're in some major plot spoil area here. So we got to be careful. Again, um, everything comes with uh, a footnote or involved interviews of scientists or weapons engineers to show could be done. Now EMP um, is uh, interesting because there's this land of vast conspiracy theory over strategic level EMP uh, caused by a nuclear weapon. Um, we it it happened uh, as an inadvertent outcome of uh, the tests um, with you know the early A bombs, um, and so there's this whole like kind of conspiracy theory land over it, and and that aspect. I, we can set that aside. There's, a, there's some science in it, but there's a lot of just wing nuttery. On the tactical side, non-nuclear EMP, that is um, definitively doable, uh, has already been woven into a variety of weapon systems, and um, both by US, uh, also Russia has a system like it, but um, with certain technology, uh, you can do so at home. Um, and, but the key is that it has a relatively limited range. So, uh, again, um, you can't take out the, it's not a story of the entire, you know, United States loses it, but you can do it within a limited amount of range. And, um, you can even pull the YouTubes to see people doing it at a micro level.
1: Yeah so I I I my my proposal was uh if you're yeah, looking yeah, for should, we, should yep. I t-
0: should should you be confessing this uh right now <laughs> Yeah yeah no I'm this
1: positive. was this, this this was a paper I wrote on uh, shocking um uh, uh, responses to unacceptable cyber intrusions and uh, uh when the russians were widely reported to have actually installed uh, um a, a, malware in our power systems that could be triggered to bring them down, Uh, and that really crossed a line in my view, I said, well, one way to respond to that is you ship a bunch of uh, EMP uh, devices uh, and put them in offices and warehouses around Moscow and make sure that the Russians can find half of them. Yeah, you know, you haven't done anything, but it's a way of saying, you know, uh, we we have a way of responding that will shock you if you actually use those tools, and maybe you should take them out, and, and we'll we'll have it all
0: shipped back to the United States. There's two themes that we're playing with, I think, that connect to that. One is the idea that um, there are increasingly capabilities that were once limited to the most powerful of states that not just non-state actors, but all the way down to individuals will possess. So if you think about, you know, the wonders of the Internet of Things and the smart city, uh, as we're baking in all of these vulnerabilities, it also means that uh, you might have a scenario where, you know, plots boil a little bit, a single individual could hold an entire city hostage. The second thing, and connecting to, uh, I think, of the interests of a lot of people on this show, is to portray... um, the discussions of cybersecurity and some of the scenarios in it, we've gotten a a little bit lazy and it kind of always goes back to, they might hack the power grid. And instead we need to recognize that critical infrastructure is in a wider array of areas. And so this is not, there's no, you know, hacking the power, there's other parts of critical infrastructure that um, we will see threats to whether it's water, whether it's transportation. And then also, by the way, the threats to the power grid might not be in the story that constantly keeps being told in both fiction and in the policy world.
1: Yeah, I agree with you about the water system. I mean, the, the, uh, the, that cybersecurity is consistently at the bottom. Uh, it's run by people who uh, are work for city government uh, and have a job that nobody respects because they manage to make it work all the time. Uh, and so they aren't uh, paid well, their budgets are likely to get cut, uh, and the the likelihood that they have up to snuff security is close to zero. Uh, all right, well, Peter, this this was terrific. Uh, um, any last words? When when is the book actually out? Can people pre order it now?
0: So the book uh, formally comes out on uh, May 26th, but we're in the world of coronavirus. So uh, hopefully everybody's social distancing and that means they can uh, order at home. Uh, it's available um you know, everywhere from uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, to there's some great um, independent uh, ways of supporting independent bookstores, uh, Bookshop and um, IndieBound. You can buy through those and it actually supports uh, your local bookstore. Um, people can find out more about it at burninbook.com. And uh, one last fun thing uh, is that on that website, they can check out Um, the, uh, wild range of early reviewers, uh, that range from, you know, people on the policy world side, the former heads of, uh, NSA, Cyber Command, CAIA, uh, NATO, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, the writers of, uh, shows like Lost, Watchmen, the new Star Trek movies. Uh, and I think it speaks to this idea of um, the two worlds coming together. Uh so for some people, it's just going to be fun fiction for other people. I hope they find it useful.
1: That that uh, endorsement wasn't from Paul Nakasonian in an email hitting on you, was it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, it 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 was not. Unfortunately, uh, he has not yet hit on me via um, email. I'll have to uh, wait for that.
1: <laughs> the novel is uh, "Burn In," a novel of the real robotic revolution by Peter Singer and August Cole, uh, and it is a an educational and entertaining read. Uh, uh, Peter, thanks so much for uh, uh, coming on. Thanks also to David, Chris, Mark McCarthy, and Nick Weaver for joining the news roundup. This has been episode three hundred and sixteen of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Septo Step, and Johnson. I have an important announcement for loyal listeners. And anybody who got this uh, far is a loyal listener. Uh, uh, our producer and editor, Michael Beaver, is leaving us at the end of the uh, at the end of the month. We're really unhappy about that, but uh, uh, that's his choice. Uh, uh, and we're looking for somebody to replace him. If your ideal job. It's probably only halftime, but it's a it's a you know these days uh, uh, that's a pretty good job uh, I is would be uh, researching and producing a, a podcast on these topics uh, send us email or comments on uh, you know uh, how outraged you are with the, by the latest remarks by the host uh, to Cyberlaw podcast at steptoecom uh, and uh, if you suggest a guest or uh, you uh, introduce us to somebody who ends up as our new producer or an editor, we will send you our highly coveted cyber law uh, mug. Uh, and uh, please go on and rate the show on your uh, uh, iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get the uh, the show because that does make a difference in people being able to find us. With that, please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.